So if you open your Bibles to 2 Peter 1, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of uh, your pew there, or one of the pews. Feel free to snag that. But we'll be going really quickly through this. Uh, We'll be going just roughly a chapter a week. Uh, Maybe we'll break it up later in later weeks, but chapter a week, three chapters, so it should be pretty quick. So I'm going to start by reading this, and then I'm going to pray and share some, some things. So 2 Peter 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at, all time, at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly designed myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to pray. Lord, just invite you in. You're always here, and you're always good. And as we read your word, I just pray that you would bring up what you want to bring up in people's hearts. You know where everybody's coming from. There are various life paths that have brought them to this particular point. Thank you for your word, and I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate whatever you want to. Let... um, just pray that you would speak through my words, Lord, and just bring to bear whatever you want to bring to bear to people. Just pray that for your grace, your filling, and your presence this evening, and I thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So, a little bit of background, uh, and you may have, we, some of this has been covered when you we were in the morning services, when we were talking about First uh, Peter, but giving you a little bit of background nonetheless. So, he's a fisherman, called by Jesus. He followed Jesus for the years of Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, Peter recognized Jesus as Christ, the Holy One of God. Peter also, he had the, like, these high moments where he had these, these flashes of recognition and insight, but he also had low moments, specifically like the night before Jesus' death, 
he swore to Jesus, he said, I am not going to abandon you. All the rest of these people may abandon you, but I will not. And then within a few hours, he had denied Jesus three times. And he was like, I believe it says he wept bitterly and he fled. And then Jesus dies on the cross. Three days later, he's resurrected. He appears to his disciples and he lovingly reinstates Peter three times, actually asking him if he loves him uh, in this beautiful scene, like by the beach. And then Peter actually became one of the leaders of the early church. Something that's interesting to keep in context here is that when Peter was reinstated by Jesus, Jesus also told Peter specifically the kind of death he was to die. Uh, in John 21, it says that Jesus told Peter right there by the beach, says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk whenever you wanted, wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show but what, by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So Peter was one of the apostles. That word apostle means just like sent ones ones who are sent, and these apostles are the spirit-filled and spirit-directed leaders of the early church during a period of explosive growth as Christianity entered the globe and rapidly spread. Uh, and he also, as, that, as we read in that verse about that passage about Jesus predicting, telling Peter what kind of death he was to die, Peter also suffered persecution, persecution even unto death, as we'll talk about a little later. Um, Peter actually, uh, tradition, so it doesn't say explicitly in the Bible how he died, but tradition, Christian tradition holds that he was crucified upside down during the Emperor Nero's reign. The Emperor Nero, there was like a, a famous fire in the mid-60s, like around 65, 64 AD, I believe, and apparently he blamed it on, a, on Christians. That's what a, Romans, a reliable Roman scholar says, that Nero blamed it on Christians. Uh, and during that time, um, Peter was... Tradition says Peter was crucified around that time. It says, this is a scholar, uh, this Greek, uh, sorry, Roman historian, Christian historian in the time of Rome named Jerome. He said, at his hands he received the crown of martyrdom, being nailed to the cross with his head towards the ground and his feet raised on high, asserting that he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. So this is a man who was faithful. He made mistakes in his life. He sinned in his life but he held to Jesus, or more importantly, Jesus held to him, and he was faithful. And the shadow of his death, in a sense, falls across this particular book, as we'll see later. He explicitly kind of references it. But this particular book is actually a letter that Peter wrote, apparently towards the end of his life, so it's estimated in the 60s AD. Um, and it's a letter written, it may be written to the same church that First Peter was written to, we don't know for sure. Um, there's some other speculation about what church it might be written to, but honestly, it doesn't really we don't need to know who it was written to exactly because we do know it's written to early Christians and it is God's word. It's also written to us. It's also got stuff for us to learn from. So a lot of themes here that we'll unpack over the, uh, the coming weeks. I'll just kind of like run through a little like uh, coming attractions, like a little sneak preview. It's going to talk about the glory of what we're called to as Christians, the preciousness of scripture, why what we actually believe about God, about the world, about human beings, why that matters. That, that is, what we believe about those things is called doctrine, and that's like something that's always been important to Christians, what is actually what we think about Jesus, what we think about people. Uh, we're going to talk about the horror with which Peter views false teaching, that it's like serious and there's a horror to it, the darkness of the alternatives to following Jesus, the reality of Jesus' return, that he's going to come back, the glorious future for believers, um, and the darkness of judgment for those who reject God. 
And we're talking about holding fast and continuing until the day of eternity. So, whenever you're reading the Bible, there's like endless richness and complexity and variety and discovering. That's why you can read the Bible again and again through your whole life and discover more and more things that come out to you. And part of that is just the process of reading and understanding more and more and making these connections and seeing like, oh, the Old Testament is connected to the New Testament. And this particular phrase that Peter uses or Paul uses echoes something in Genesis or in various parts of the Old Testament. So part of it is that, but part of it is also because we are encountering the Bible with the author of the Bible there as Christians, the Holy Spirit within us who brings things to bear. And that's what part of why at the start I was just praying for that the Spirit would bring up whatever he wants to bring up. Because man, as we're talking, maybe something's going to pop out to you. You'll start to kind of feel like, oh, this is like kind of, my mind is drifting towards this like truth or whatever it is. It might not even be something that I'm saying explicitly in context, but it's something the Lord is bringing to bear on you. I don't necessarily mean you start thinking about football scores, but I do mean you start, th- you find yourself, oh, this particular, this particular phrase or this theme or whatever, I feel like the Lord has something for me in this. So whatever that is, whatever it's like a particular doctrine or something, like we can always like come to church expecting the Lord has something for me during this time, something like he wants to impart to me. And like, come, even if that's just the joy of his presence or like worshiping him, worshiping him, even if you don't feel like it. So, um, that's why I make that, I prayed that at the start. And so as we're kind of talking through things, you know, like I'm not going to cover everything in depth. I can encourage you to keep continuing going back to your Bible, but see what comes up. See what comes up. It may surprise you even. Uh, so today we're looking at the first chapter and some things I want to kind of tease out specifically, three specifically we'll cover, is seeing what we've been given as Christians. Um, and if you're not a Christian, it's seeing what the Lord has on offer for you. He's saying, please come take this. So seeing what we've been given, living in light of all that we've been invited into, and trusting what the Lord's revealed in Jesus in Scripture. So firstly, seeing what you've been given. Uh, It starts off, Simeon Peter, or Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So one thing I just want to point out here is notice all the warmth here, the welcome of it. This is not like Peter just writing a cold letter to just a church, just like a cold, uh, just like a kind of logistical letter, like, hey, I'm over the churches. I notice giving is down. And just, you know, sends him a letter that that way. This is somebody who cares passionately about the people he's writing to. And there's like a warmth there. And what I love is, it says right there, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, He's not saying, hey, I'm an apostle. I was actually with Jesus, unlike you guys. Or like, I'm an apostle. I'm kind of up here. You guys are kind of down here, and that's cool. But he's saying right here, he's saying uh, a faith of equal standing with ours. Because that standing, as Christians, we all have this equal standing because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Peter's, Peter's starting off talking about that. He doesn't lord it over people. He's not playing some sort of power game. And I love that. Just kind of starting off, like, in a sense, just like, a brother among brothers, with open arms talking to people. A brother among brothers and sisters. Um, so, he says that. We're on the same team as Peter. We're all in the same boat. We're in a kingdom where our standing isn't contingent upon where we were born or how much money we make or anything like that. Our standing is contingent upon who Jesus is and whether we've accepted him in. It says here, uh, Jesus, it's interesting, it doesn't say the righteousness of our great teacher, Jesus Christ, though he is a great teacher, 
doesn't say the righteousness of our great friend Jesus Christ, though he is our great friend. It doesn't say because of the merely human Jesus Christ, but instead actually says the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God and Savior. It moves on, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his, very, his precious and very great promises, so that through him, them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. I just want to read that. Read, I want to have read that sentence again in its fullness. God has given us so much so much, so much rich, richness there. Precious and very great promises. One translation I read reads magnificent, magnificent promises. Just so many grace gifts, meaning gifts like God's favor just freely given to us. In Christ, it's like we're being kind of welcomed into a vast mansion filled with just this opulence of wealth. Not the world's wealth, not wealth that rusts and moth can like eat away, but lasting good things. And that makes sense. He's a God of the universe. Like he gives generously to his children, but the things he gives don't necessarily look like the things the world gives. We get actually better things. Doesn't say he's going to give us cars, a comfortable lifestyle, tons of money, anything like that. He's not saying that, but he is saying he's given us good things, magnificently good things. You know, I sometimes think that like I mean, it's kind of wild. We get obsessed with a lot of the external trappings of success, which fade away in a lot of ways are actually toxic for us, but it's wild. It's like we live in this world and stuff like just we're surrounded by it all the time and you can feel it, right? Like day after day, it can be feel, if you just kind of go on autopilot, it can be very easy to fall into thinking like, oh, like what really matters is what's in my bank account. What really matters is how famous I am or, you know, if, if that's what the particular flavor that attracts you. Uh, for many people, it's like, oh, no, that's the last thing in the world I want, which is probably kind of healthy. Uh, how many friends you have, your relationship status, your, whether you actually, like, you're on a career track you think is important, it's the way you, important, the way you dress, the way, like, what shape you're in, all these kinds of things that feel like these are these markers of what a successful life means are not how God measures success. They're not how God measures success. And they're not necessarily, like, God gives good gifts, so be grateful for that, but the truly good gifts he gives, we sometimes get sucked into thinking they aren't really good gifts. You know, there's this verse where Jesus says, what father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will give him a, sn a snake or like a serpent instead of a fish. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. And he says, if you then, who are evil, that's just like a sweet aside, you're evil. If then you, uh, you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And you know, we can get kind of duped, I get duped, into thinking that God's gifts are like consolation prizes, you know, like, ah, you didn't really get what you wanted out of life, but here's something you don't really want. Like a kid getting carrots uh, instead of candy in a Christmas stocking, which that hasn't happened to me, but that'd be interesting. Uh, but God's gifts are actually the most precious ones possible because they're linked to him. They're linked to who he is, the God of the universe, the one who made absolutely everything and everything good, everything we desire. And it says here, we are made partakers of the divine nature think of that. That means we get to partake of God's nature, the God who made absolutely everything, everything you desire, everything you ever think is good, just the, the, the capacity to experience the world itself, just everything. You watch a science show, any animal you see, oh yeah, God made that, the intricacies of that design, God made that. 
you listen to music, the way the chords fall in your ears, the way those trigger emotions, all those kinds of things. God made that. And the God of the universe, we get to be partakers of the divine nature. That doesn't mean that human beings become God. Doesn't mean that. It says partakers of his nature, though. Partakers of his nature. What a rich mystery. You know, you think of like the whole arc of the Bible. God makes people good. Like he gives them a good world. They rebel against him. And instead of just scrubbing his hands, God actually goes, comes into human history and gives them even more, in a sense. Like, comes in and just lifts them up out of the mire and gives them great gifts. He doesn't just, like, doesn't just bring us back to neutral, just like, okay, I'll kind of clean you guys up, and then you figure it out from here. He actually invites us to become partakers of the divine nature, which is a mystery. He gives us so much righteousness, life, identity in him, in Christ, enjoying fellowship with him, and getting to be with him forever, as was intended, as was intended. The Bible, I preached about this before, I love just thinking about it. At the end, in Revelation, which depicts like the end of the world, as it were, uh, at the end of the world, the end of time, the end of all things, this age, there's actually, Revelation uh, depicts a wedding, a wedding between Christ and the church, and that is a great mystery, but we get invited into so much it's only the beginning of something very beautiful. Beautiful, more beautiful, I think, than any of us could really imagine. So, if you're a Christian sitting here today, or listening to this later, um, no matter what the externals of your life seem like, you have been given more than you could possibly imagine. Your bank account is just has got an infinity sign on it, as it were. More than you could possibly imagine, because you've been given fellowship with Christ. You've been given an identity the world can't take away and a hope that won't diminish with time. Just, you're looking onwards towards an eternity of good things, of fellowship with him and others. It's a beautiful thing. So the externals of people who seem successful in the world, those externals, those are illusions. Those will go away. Their false trappings will be torn away, and the reality will stand. And you will stand too if you're with him, if you're in him. And it's interesting, there's like a twofold kind of move here. One, partakers of the divine nature, right? And then it also follows up with a saying, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful design, desire, or some translations say lust. So there's like a twofold. You're a partaker of the divine nature, and you've escaped the corruption of the world. So it's not just, it's sweet, because it's not just, oh, you've escaped the corruption of the world. Well, you're not there, but actually you're lifted up to this place of a partaker of the divine nature. And you know, that, that line about the corruption of the world, that's not necessarily th- something we find ourselves thinking of necessarily, or like to think of. It doesn't feel pleasant always. But it's true, the world is corrupt. It is morally bankrupt. It can get so, and you know, the world, I wanna be very clear here, the world here, it's not saying just, well, the natural world stinks. Or it's not saying just like, oh, the world of physical things is bad. It's not saying that. It's talking about the world, like a corrupt world system, like the system, the whole, the entirety of a world set against God. That's what it's not talking about. It's not talking about the good things that the Lord made. but. You know, I think it, uh, we have those moments. I feel like oftentimes we oscillate, I oscillate. You know, you can think of, wow, there's so much good in the world. You can enjoy the beauty of it. That is like in just in the creative world God made. There can be so much good. And in those moments, you kind of, you kind of forget like, but man, the, uh, you can be tempted to forget the fact that we're headed for something even better. God's kingdom, that that is even a better thing. And there's other moments where you can feel like, man, you get cut off in traffic, you're having a terrible day, and you just feel like, man, I hate this place, let it fry, which I, that's, that's, very, that's a very intense phrase, phrase. But, you know, you just feel frustrated, just like, I'm over this thing. Let's like, I remember somebody during COVID, 
saying just like, okay, I'm ready. Let's flip it. Let's wrap this up. Let's just flip the switch. This thing's over. You can feel frustrated just like, ah, because you feel the heartbreak, the disappointment, the frustration of life on this planet, of life amongst other people in a sinful world, in a broken world. You know, you ever have those moments where you just look at the news and you just think like, oh, or you're just in a person, like just kind of a complicated bummer situation, personally, relationally, and just think, ah, I just, I want to tap out. I'm done. Or alternately, you have those moments where you feel like piercing beauty, whether it's maybe you see like a beautiful film, hear a particularly beautiful uh, piece of music, where there's like this beauty that you can feel that's also kind of melancholy. It just like pierces you and you feel that longing for something more than just the merely physical, something more than the, what the world has on offer. And that longing is because we are made for a a better place, a better kingdom. Hebrews 13 says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. If you're a Christian here, you don't have a lasting city here. You're in exile in a sense because you have a better destination because at the end of time, we have a new heavens and a new earth to look forward to. And that isn't, that isn't something that like negates the beauty, the goodness of things we experience in this life on this earth but it is something that looks forward, that longs for the way things are supposed to be and long the way things will be. There's a better kingdom we're invited into from the true king of the universe. Uh, verse 5 talks about here, um, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. And he goes to this list, and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly love, or brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Those are the things we're called to by the power of the Spirit. You know, there's an idea out there that just what we, are, what we are called to, the way to flourish as a human, is actually to look as deep inside as you can and find whatever desires there or whatever feels natural and just give full vent to that. And that, that is what will actually make you happy, bring you into a place of flourishing as a human. Basically, there's this idea that w- we should do whatever's natural. But what's natural isn't necessarily actually natural. What feels like it draws us, it's like the most easy thing to come out of me, what it draws me into, isn't necessarily actually who I want to be. You know, I think in many ways, this idea is a legacy from the 18th century movement romanticism and Rousseau, and just this, I kinda, this idea that like, if I were just to like, what is best, would be best and most human, I guess most life-giving in a sense, would be like, if, would be if you like plopped me in the middle of the jungle with no influences from civilization whatsoever, that civilization actually is what corrupts, and that just whatever would arise within me, that is like the essence of being a human. That is actually what would make me most free. Uh, This idea that what is natural, what feels natural, is what's right. But just think about that for us for a little bit. If you were to just give give full vent to the impulses that arise arise within you, I mean, have you ever been talking to somebody and just felt like you're having a disagreement and you just feel like, yelling at him or slapping him or just like, ah, I'm done, just push him over and walk away. It's funny, I mean, you just like look at kids, like kids acting naturally, like children. It can be very sweet at times, right? Like, oh, this is so beautiful. There's like kindness just naturally arising from that sweet little tender heart. But also that same sweet little tender heart is the same heart that like, oh, that kid has a toy I want, mine. Or like, oh, yeah, you say something I don't like, smack, you're done. Uh, just pushing someone out of the way. These things also are what arise naturally from people. Uh, you know, when you think of like, in a darker note, when public figures 
uh, commit like assault or sexual assault or they're like manipulative or this horrible stuff from behind the scenes comes out, they are acting naturally to some degree. They are giving full vent to the impulses they have within them. And I think within us, an honest look at your own heart, there are things which arise naturally for you which are not good, which are not even who you, like you may even feel in bondage to those things to some degree, like, oh, this is what I am naturally pulled to. It is not what I want to be pulled to. It is not what I want to be pulled to. And we're in, called in to something else. So even though our society says to whatever feels most compelling, whatever pulls you most internally is what you should do, society itself doesn't even believe that because if that happened, our society would just degenerate into a complete madhouse. So what we need to look at is the Lord who made our minds, who made our, us body and soul and spirit. He knows all our desi desires. He knows our desires better than we know them. Letting him guide us and show us what desires are good and what are kind of illusions, what are like looking for the right answers in the wrong places. So as we go through, I just want to kind of read through this list and just like sit on these and maybe like maybe one or two of them are like popping out to you especially like, oh, I want that or like I feel the longing for that. Faith. Virtue. That word virtue, you know, we don't necessarily use that a lot um, in broader social context, but doing the right, doing the right thing. We hear a lot about vice in our society, uh, but not necessarily virtue. It's like kind of funny to think of, man, how many TV shows are kind of predicated on somebody just going down the tubes morally, like Mad Men, Breaking Bad, just like, oh yeah, somebody just completely, completely losing it. But we don't, aren't there necessarily a lot of TV shows on like, oh man, like somebody just doing the right thing, trying to get their life together, be kind to people. You don't see a lot of that because it's actually way harder and it's more beautiful, I think, but oftentimes I think we're too, I sometimes think we're just, our minds are too weak to see the beauty of it. It's like more reflective of our weakness than the weakness of virtue because it's creative rather than a destructive act. So we'll keep going through the list. Knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. And it's interesting to me, those are not like a series of cold, hard, like religious rules to check off in some like box. They're warm, beautiful aspects of human beings being human the way they were meant to be. You know, like that phrase religion, which people can kind of just throw around, that can have these associations of like hypocritical, dry, just like cold. But like actually when you look at the Bible, what religion truly is, is things like this. Warm, beautiful, the essence of being human, the kind of world we want to live in, the kind of like kindness, the kind of things we want to experience in our own lives that we long for. Jesus shows us what it is like to be human, the way we were meant to be human, and see how these things are bound together. It's like they're like tied together in a string, self-control and brotherly affection, knowledge and love, these things that we kind of can compartmentalize in our mind, compartmentalize in our minds, this disparate, these are actually all connected. They're all part of this one beautiful vision. They're not isolated virtues. They're gifts they're things, they're qualities that come from the Holy Spirit. And it's really futile to pursue these things without the Holy Spirit because we can't achieve them in their entirety in a way that honors God without God himself. And their purpose, their aim, the way they are, they're actually meant to flourish is in communion with him, being with him. So even though these are things that you may demonstrate with other people in community, they're things that are supposed to happen primarily, they're cultivated, they arise in community with God 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So as Christians, we are given God's own spirit, which is just, you kind of think about that, that is an unfathomable gift. The spirit of the God of the universe who made everything is placed within us for free just by placing faith in Jesus. So he gives us that spirit to dwell within us and change us and guide us and fill us. But even if you're a Christian, like that, there's, there is still a continual surrender to that and asking him in and asking for more of, just like for him to have more of you, for your arms to be, your hands to be open, to say, I need you. I can't cultivate these things by themselves, by myself. So lean on him. Ask him to fill you for these things. You know, even if there's specific stuff that comes up right now, pray for it at the end of church. Pray for it right now in your heart, but pray, you can pray for it at the, end of, uh, at the end of this time, like during worship. Like, ask him for those things. It says, verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're supposed to pursue these things. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter, in verse 9, he's saying, if you don't have these qualities, you've forgotten what you're cleansed from. You've forgotten the identity you've been given. You've been forgiven. So diligently practice these things. Seek to embody them, them. Show yourself a Christian so this doesn't mean, this, for, this passage here, doesn't mean that like being called by God, being elect, which means like among the chosen by God, that doesn't mean it's contingent on how good we are. It doesn't mean it's contingent on like, oh, how is my like scorecard doing? That my relationship with Jesus depends on like, how good am I? Am I if, if I'm a Christian on a given day means where I'm like, how good I am and fulfilling whatever, whatever kind of rubric you have in your mind. It's not about how perfectly we embody these virtues. Rather, it's since we belong to, be G- to Jesus, since we've been given these things, we strive to embody them as a result. We strive to live this out as a result of who he has already made us because our salvation, our relationship with God is contingent. It is like settled on what Jesus has done. We've been forgiven. We've been invited into this grand adventure. We've been given a new identity. We've been given of his spirit. So we walk out in these things as a result. And it's interesting, Peter goes on and says, therefore I I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. And I love, he's just saying here, hey, I always want to remind you of these things. I always want to remind you of them. He's just underscoring the importance of recalling who we, what we are actually called to and who we are. You know, I've talked about this before in kind of past sermons, but I think it is so important to remember what story you're in. What story you're in, because there are so many stories in this world that tell you this is your story, or this is the story you're a part of. Uh, Whether that story is just like, I'm the story of a successful executive at a shoe company, which will not be named, but is in Beaverton. Like, that's my primary story. Or my primary story is I'm an artist who lives in Portland, and he came here to pursue my dreams, and now it's going so well. Or maybe now it's not going so well. Or maybe the story is, like, the story you feel pulled to is like, ah, oh, my dad said I was going to be a failure, and yeah, I'm blowing it. Or perhaps your story is like, oh, my parents said I was f- going to be a failure, and guess what? <laughs> Check out my bank-, bank account. I'm doing great. I'm not a failure. Uh, there are all these kind of things we're pulled towards. But the Bible 
tells us actually the true story of the world, and the reality is it's not about our story. It's about his story. We're invited into the biggest possible story we could be. So do you see your story, your personal story, do you see it as a story about you in which you're the primary hero? And how's that working out? might not be working out so well because it's hard. That is a, a burden we are not supposed to bear. Christianity, like the story of the Bible, says that Jesus is actually the primary hero, and he doesn't exist to fulfill our dreams per se. We exist actually because he made us. And that might sound like a bummer, like, oh, it's not about me. Like, oh, I guess I'm just like, it doesn't, you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm bummed out. It means like I got to bury all my dreams and just be content with like whatever. But actually, he's calling us, that's like looking at it the wrong way around. He's actually calling us into something that's way bigger and way more beautiful than we could possibly know the fact that it's about him and not about us is good. And also, it's good news because we're not supposed to be ultimate rulers. You know, I think our world says that true freedom is having no boundaries, being able to do, and having the power to do whatever you want. But true freedom, biblical freedom, is about doing what you are created to do, about being who you're created to be. And we're created to be in communion with the infinite God of the universe. What is more beautiful and bigger than that? So uh, perhaps, the not, uh, perhaps not the most, you know, I feel like when people trot out movie examples in sermons, oftentimes it's like, oh, look how, like, oh, this is like kind of culturally relevant. This is like uh, something which people will be able to relate to. But what came to mind here is perhaps not that, unless there were a crowd of kids, but Toy Story. Uh, almost 30 years old, which I can't believe that, that Toy Story is almost 30 years old. But Buzz Lightyear and Toy Story, if you've seen it, uh, he's under the delusion, I mean, I feel like I don't need to explain what the story of Toy Story is, but you never know. So he's under the delusion that he, he's a toy, he's under the delusion that he is in fact a uh, space ranger sent to defeat the evil emperor Zerg. I'm like very deep in the mythology there. Uh, so he's under that delusion. Woody, who's a cowboy, who's a toy, knows he's a toy. He takes, he buzz drives him up the wall. Uh, he like kind of, it appears, he tries to kill Buzz, which, wow, dark, dark. Uh, but in the end, like, there's at one point where Bu Woody like yells at Buzz, you are a toy. And just like a reality check, you are not who you think you are. You are not this kind of highfalutin thing. And I think of that, it's like kind of a radical message actually, if you think about it, that we tend to think that we, it is all about us. Like the main characters in Toy Story that you know, this is like pulled like, oh, I'm a space ranger. I'm doing all this important thing. But the reality is that they're child's playthings. And their purpose is actually to like be there for these kids as they grow up. Their purpose is to serve. And I think it's interesting to think like, oh man, like how often in, ours, in our world do we hear about, oh, your purpose is actually not to be awesome. Your purpose is not to like fulfill all your dreams. Your purpose is actually to serve. And in theory, I think there's some areas where we like at least give lip service to that like in public office politicians and stuff but like how often do we actually see it like oh this 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 uh person in authority whatever it is whether it's just like ceo or it's a president or whatever it is they like genuinely are here to serve and they genuinely see it as like oh it's my honor to like be lowly to wash people's feet to like make sure people are taken care of but god himself in jesus shows us that oh like God himself came to serve us. And our purpose, too, is to serve something grander. And we were made for that. And so actually, that's the thing. It's like going with, you know, if you kind of think of like what the grain of the universe is, we are made 
to actually like serve God and to be creatures rather than creators because that, that burden of being a creator is something that's, and like figuring it all out or it all being about me or like fixing myself, that's a burden that's way too big for me to carry, for any of us to carry. We're not supposed to live like that. Augustine, the uh, renowned church father, I think fourth century, he said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And really, we're made to be worshipers. And unless we worship God, one, we're idolaters, but we're never also going to find the lasting peace, the rest that we're longing for. Because like that quote, our hearts are restless until they rest in the one who can hold them, in the one they're made to rest in. So Peter goes on, uh, he, in verse 14, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. He talks about his coming departure. It says that Jesus actually made it clear to him that his death is going to be soon. And it's interesting to think of like Peter's death was looming and there's like a sense of like time ticking down as he's writing this. But still now, 2,000 years later, he's like teaching us. His words are like affecting us and they're meant for our lives. And his concern for the church at a time when he was like going to die, and actually like I think Ian brought this up a little while ago, um, Peter actually, like, tradition holds, again, doesn't say it in the Bible, I can't say with exact, like, uh, I can't say I know this for sure, but tradition holds that Peter was actually crucified around the same time as his wife. So they're both crucified, they both endured a very grisly end. But it's interesting that here we see that Peter's concern is not, Jesus made clear to me I'm going to die soon, and I need to figure out how to get out of this thing with the least amount of pain, or so I'm going to get out of here and go hide out, but rather his concern here is, for the church to remember these things, to bring these things up people's awareness so they can recall them easily later. We keep going. Uh, verse 16, Peter talks about, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths, myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So, Jesus is no myth or legend. He's kind of saying it right from the, right from the get-go. We didn't follow cleverly devised uh, myths here. And you know, the idea that Jesus is a myth, that's something you might find, have heard people say, or maybe you've seen it online, just like on a random YouTube, that Jesus is a myth. And I will just say that is like, really, I would say with all due respect, it is not intellectually defensible. Because if you actually like, press in, there's many reasons to believe like, oh no, like Jesus for sure was real. He was a real person. That's like the consensus of scholars, Christian or non-Christian alike. Um, it is not a myth. And if you have questions about that, I would love to talk later. Um, but Peter here is saying, oh, I know it's not a myth. This isn't like some cleverly devised thing. I was there. I was actually there on the mountain. And what he's referring to in verse 18 is a specific event called the Transfiguration, where basically, towards the end of his earthly ministry, uh, Jesus took Peter and James and John, three disciples, took them and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. It says, and he was, in uh, Matthew it says, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And it says that when the disciples heard that, they fell on their faces and were terrified. 
But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So, incredible, incredible moment. So often in Jesus' ministry, it seems that he was like, okay, so he was healing people. It was clear, like, by his character, who, what he was doing, that this was God. And people were like, people didn't fully get it, but they were like, well, something extraordinary is happening. And with a kind of dawning, slowly dawning realization of who this actually is, people declaring that he's the Holy One, people declaring that he's the Messiah. But it's interesting to me that like, so often in Jesus' ministry, it wasn't like there was like, wasn't like he was walking around and just there was this, doesn't describe a massive, just he was, glow, he was glowing the whole time. There's, you know, like storm clouds gathering around him perpetually or that he was like floating, you know, just floating above the earth. He came as a human and in the sense it was like the reality of who he is as God. It's not like God was like perpetually, it's not like he was lit, perpetually lit up in neon, you know. But there are moments like this, Matthew 17, where it was very clear, like the signs are like, oh, it says a cloud came around them. Jesus was shining, and God the Father, the voice of God the Father says, this is my beloved son. So one of those like, moments, it's almost like the veil of reality parts, and you see, whoa, this is the son of God. This is like, this is incredible. But so much of life, his life, his ministry, he was healing people. Miraculous things were happening. Who he was was shining forth, but it wasn't in, I think, the way we often think of like what a, uh, it wasn't like a movie nonstop. And it's interesting because I think that's, that's something worth pondering about, the Christian life. Because a Christian life, following Jesus, there are moments of life which are like, whoa, this is like kind of clouds parting, moments that are like electric, like, oh, God is here. God is clearly doing this. I would be crazy not to see that. Like incredible moments where you feel like God's imparting something in particular, speaking something, or just a direct, so obvious answer to prayer, or even just like, man, healings and miraculous, things that are like outside of our our, our every day. So stuff like that happens, but so much of the Christian life is the day-to-day walking with Jesus, walking with other people, the moments that don't look like a movie, where things aren't like glowing, where there's not like halos over everything. So much of our, our regular life is done in ways that don't seem glamorous, but actually God loves to work through that, and he does work th- through those things, and they're vitally important, important and they shape us because a lot of times life is hard or life can feel dreary or just kind of feels like the same day in, day out. But God is working through those things. And I think it's really interesting that so much of the time in Jesus' ministry, it wasn't like lit up in technicolor. It was happening in the everyday. And there's something very powerful, us to think, powerful for us to think about with that. So, so it continues on. Peter talks about the prophetic word, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So the prophetic word talks about it as a lamp shining in darkness, and I love that what it says here, dawn is coming, the morning star rises. Um, And we're going to talk more about this next week, but uh, essentially scripture places us like during Peter's time, first century AD, on to right now, 2022, it's placing us in the last days, waiting for Jesus' return, the new heavens and the new earth. And talking about that morning star uh, rises in our hearts, you know, I have this like, where my bed is located, it's like right up against a window, and it's perfect because I just, if I wake up in the middle of the night or sometimes as I'm falling asleep, I can just pull the, uh, pull a curtain back, and I can see, just got a clear shot into the heavens, and mostly it's clouded over, but occasionally you see the stars out. 
and sometimes I see uh, what I believe is a morning star. Because morning star, uh, usually people will say it's actually Venus. It's the brightest star in the sky. Venus is a planet, but just go with it. Uh, but in any case, like seeing that, there's just something so sweet. It's like this, this beautiful, shining thing so many miles away, kind of like just cosmically inconceivable how far away it is but it's bringing light to me right here and just like looking up and seeing that. And Jesus actually says in Revelation 22, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So Jesus actually calls himself, there's different contexts morning star is used in the Bible, but Jesus actually describes himself that, that at one point. So think of it as a shining star, just this bright point that we, you look up, and there it is. And it talks about the morning star rising, kind of like coming, bringing with it the dawn is the kind of sense. Remember the morning star. Remember the reality of the dawn that is going to be dawning. And don't get wrapped up in the world. It can feel so easy, like I said, for those other stories to pull us in or for those other st stories to feel like, well, that's more palpable or more imminent. But the reality is the, story, the true story of the world is God's story. And one day, everybody will see that. It says one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Whether people are like down with Jesus or not, whether they like actually accept him into their hearts as Lord, but one day everybody will see, oh, Jesus is Lord. He really is who he said he is. He's the only way, the only lasting light, the only true morning star, the only one who can bring dawn to our, to our lives and whatever the particularities, the situations we're going through. And we can trust him. And like it says, prophetic word we can trust we can trust scripture it ends for the for this chapter ends for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy spirit and i want to talk a little more about that next week i think it'll be a good way to kind of parlay into chapter two but what the takeaway for tonight is trusting him trusting him and consider right now like what is the lord bringing to bear in your heart like what of that whether it's that list of virtues we went through whether it's just talking about those different stories what is what's like tugging you what do you feel like the lord's kind of highlighting for you trust in jesus if you haven't already given your life to him trust in jesus and if you have trusted in jesus trust in him again it's like a perpetual thing right like you come to know jesus doesn't mean like a perpetual altar call you keep receiving jesus for the first time over and over but it does mean the christian life is one of continual repentance continually reorienting our lives towards him continuing looking to him, continuing to trust him. We're called to that, all of us, every day, again and again, to trust in Jesus, to trust in the story he's weaving in our lives, to continually throwing our cares upon him, to throw, throwing ourselves into this ocean of his grace and his goodness and his kindness and his love. If there's sin in your life, you can confess. If there's worry, pray with someone else. Like, bring it before somebody else. Like, tap somebody on the so shoulder over here. Tap tap Ian, tap me, whomever. Is it rejoicing? Worship him. Like, we're all invited into this, and he really, really loves you. He is a light which will never go out. I'm going to pray right now. Worship team's going to come up. Very grateful to be here with you guys.